this final topic I want to raise with you is, on its face, a very surprising thing for you to be endorsing. This is the the topic of universal basic income, which I've talked about in some context on this podcast as a possible remedy for the increasing role that automation is playing in our economy. And so what happens when automation and in the limit AI get so good that jobs disappear and, they, and, and new ones never spring up in their place? How do you deal with a what would be a you know a 50 or 70% unemployment rate in some possible future well one answer and this is an answer that is older than i realize but it's suddenly very popular and current in silicon valley you give people money and this is called universal basic income you've written a book about this which uh, unfortunately i haven't read but i i've heard you talk about it and this is a surprise because in coming apart you are fairly critical of the welfare state in all its guises and and you you just said something that at least implied disparagement of of the welfare state in Europe as we know it. So tell me why you are an advocate for universal basic income. Well, I first wrote the book back in 2005 or six called In Our Hands, but I did it initially for the same reason that Milton Friedman was in favor of a negative income tax. The idea is that you replace the current system with a universal basic income. And that you you leave people alone to make their decisions about how to use it. But the other reason I've I've wanted to write the book is because I thought, and I still think, it provides a way in which we might actually revitalize America's civic culture, which is to say, the civic culture in which an, a lot a lot of problems get solved at a very local level. And the reason I make that argument is that an income stream. And under my plan, the money would be deposited every month electronically into a known bank account. An income stream gives people moral agency, whether they want it or not. Uh, let's take the example of a guy who is living off his girlfriend. And he can't seem to hold on to a job, and uh, he's uh, feckless, and she puts up with him. She loves him. Uh, well, all at once now he's got an income stream. I think it's quite probable that the young woman will say, you know what, I think uh, kicking in three or 400 bucks a, m a month at this point is appropriate. I think that's a very good thing for her to do, and it's very good for him to be hit with that request. I also think it's a good thing that if he uh, drinks up all his money under a universal basic income with 10 days to go, that his friends or his girlfriend or his parents or anybody, other people say, well, we aren't going to let you starve but it's time to get your act together. And I think that kind of saying to someone, don't tell us you're helpless because you aren't helpless. The question is whether you're going to do anything about it. I think those kinds of interactions on a millions of times a day around the mm. country would be a good thing. And, and I'm also, you know, if there's one thing that writing the bell curve did, it sensitized me to the extent to which uh, a high IQ is pure luck. Yep. None of us, none of us earn our IQ, whether yeah. it's nature or nurture. We aren't the ones who did the nurturing <laughs> hard work and perseverance and all these other qualities are great. Can't take credit for our IQ. We live in a society that's tailor made for people with high IQs. The people who got the short end of the stick in that lottery, mixing my metaphors, they deserve our admiration and our 
support if they're doing everything right. And so now I'm thinking about a couple. They uh, each make $13,000 a year, let's say. So that's a really low paying job if they're working full time. That's $26,000. They're scraping by. They're above the poverty line, but not by much. Uh, Really hard to raise kids that way. Suppose you have a $12,000 a year universal basic income. That's 24 under their 26. All at once, they're at 50 grand. Hmm. And and with that 50 grand, they can have a good lower middle class income. They can raise a family. The, all sorts of things open up to them that weren't open before. So that's the reason for the title of the book, Putting Lives Back in Our Hands. And so I think replacing the welfare state with that is going to be the rare case where you have side effects that are not unintended side effects that are terrible, that but unintended side effects that have the potential for rejuvenating America's civic culture. I, I put out a revised version of the book just last year, two years ago, because of precisely the issue you're talking about. I am one of those people who say, I know how Hard it is to say this time is different. I know the Luddites have been saying that for two centuries and they've always been wrong. This time is different. AI is, I think, within the, the, on the cusp of a J-curve where it goes from a very slow progress over the last couple of decades to nonlinear acceleration in the things it can do. And I think it will transform the job market unrecognizably within 20 or 30 years. I certainly do as well. And uh, are you worried at all about the incentives just not being aligned if you give out universal basic income? Is there, is there any any tweaking of it that that makes it more likely to produce the, the good changes you're picturing? Oh, there are a couple of, I think, really, really important things. And one of them is that, indeed, you do get rid of uh, the other welfare state services. And the second thing is that you have a very high point at which the guaranteed income is subject to a surtax. I want to lure people into working so they they get to a point where they can't afford to quit. Let's say in my plan, I say it's $30,000 of earned income. So until you've got $30,000 of earned income on your own, you keep all of the, let's say $12,000. And then after that, you start to pay a small surtax back. Well, Okay, so you have been in a situation where you have the 12,000, but anything you go out and earn, you keep. So you've gotten into the habit of working, and if you've gotten up to $30,000, you are not going to trade a $42,000 a year lifestyle for a $12,000 a year lifestyle. But if you have the payback point quicker, uh, you, you, I think you increase the likelihood that, that you have disincentives to work. Mm-hmm. There, it needs to be... It, deposited electronically into a known bank account. It needs to be universal because one of the key things about this is that everybody knows that everybody else is getting the money. And so once you have that universal knowledge, then a whole variety of interactions can be set in motion that wouldn't be set in motion without that knowledge. So yeah, you can tweak, you can either have it be disastrous, but you can also fairly easily design it so that it's it's quite likely to produce good effects. I am not denying it will have work disincentives. There will be work disincentives, but we are already at a point, Sam, where 
something more than 20% of working age uh, males with uh, high school diplomas and no more are out of the labor force. Hmm. So we already have a whole lot of guys sitting at home in front of a TV set or a Game Boy, probably stoned on meth uh, or, or opioids, doing nothing. We got a problem already. And I see a lot of ways in which the moral agency that an income would give could make the problem less. The, the dysfunction you you see in white and largely rural America now, is it analogous to the dysfunction that we were seeing in the, in the black inner city starting a few decades ago? Is, is, are there important differences or, or how, do you, how do you view that? In, in some ways, it followed pretty much the same trajectory. Way back in 1992 or three, it was, I had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal called The Coming White Underclass. And I was simply tracking the growth in uh, non-marital births among white uh, working class people. And I said to myself, along with Pat Moynihan, who said it better and first, that if you have communities in which large numbers of young men are growing to adulthood without a male figure, uh, you ask for it and get chaos. And I assumed that what had happened in the black community when non-marital births uh, kept on going up was going to happen in the white community. Mm. So in that sense, they followed pretty much a predictable trajectory. What was not predictable was the degree of demoralization that seems to be special to white working class uh, in the last 17 years. And here the work of Anne Case and Angus Deaton, the economists at Princeton, on the rising mortality from cirrhosis mm -hmm. of the liver and opioid uh, overdosing and other kinds of diseases that indicate dysfunction. The, that rise has been anomalous. So that whereas the death rate from those causes among white working class was 30% lower than for blacks in the 1990s, it's now 30% higher. That's different. I think, I think white, white working class America has become demoralized in a uniquely devastating way in the last, since the turn of the century.